I'm interested with Mike Greenberg is presented by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Doris Burke is my guest this week as we continue this season of talking to the legendary voices and chroniclers of sports. And there is none who I think has become more iconic in her own way and her own right by doing it her own way than my, my friend, the great Doris Burke. I'm really looking forward to this. We've had wonderful conversations with everyone from Nike to Rico and Susan Waldman to uh, Vince Scully, Chris Berman. Looking forward to the remainder of this season, but this one should be special. Doris will join me here in just a moment. Also, before I bring Doris in here, I want to let everyone know you should check out ESPN Investigates. Season two of the ESPN Investigates podcast is now available. The Running Man tells the story of an obscure former Olympian, an alleged serial sexual predator, and how a 14-month ESPN investigation brought him out of the shadows. More than 50 men were physically abused and mentally manipulated by their coach for over 40 years until they banded together decades later to find justice. Subscribe and listen now to ESPN Investigates wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, it's now time for the main event. Here comes Doris Burke in three, two, and one. She is perhaps the most respected and most beloved announcer that we have at ESPN today, and I don't think that's an exaggeration, and I will not embarrass her into having to respond to it. I will merely say I am delighted to welcome Doris Burke to I'm Interested in this conversation. Thanks so much for doing this, Doris. I know how busy everything is. How have you been? Oh, superb, Mike. So uh, so thankful that we made it all the way through the bubble. That almost felt miraculous to me what uh, what the NBA pulled off in Orlando, but uh, happy to be home and uh, and uh, anxious for the for the NBA season. It sounds like it may turn around pretty quick here. Absolutely. You know, I, I wasn't even going to you, you, you reminded me that I should just ask you. What was it like there for all of us who were on the outside trying to gain some sense of it? What, how would you describe what it was like living in the bubble? For how, how long were you there? How many weeks? So in total, 67 days. Uh-huh. I took one one week break because my daughter did end up getting married, though, in a very small private ceremony. Uh, but, you know, listen, the, the working conditions were, were spectacular, right? We were at a great hotel. Uh, there was a golf course which turned out to be quite good for my mental health because you really you needed something to to do and to occupy your time when you were not working. We we joked, Mike, that every day was Wednesday because you woke up in the same room uh, looking at the same four walls. You would go down for your coffee and see the same people eat the same meals um, and, and virtually do the same thing every single day. So it's sort of a bizarre uh you know, situation. But again, the basketball was top notch. Um, the games were, were much better. I, I anticipated that it might be sloppy basketball. It turned to, to be so great. And your your guy, LeBron James, made you look so <laughs> smart, didn't he? You were you were on his MVP case the entire year and uh and what an incredible story for LeBron James winning fourth title, fourth MVP. I'd like to think he did it just for me. You actually made me think of, of two of two quick things in there. The first of them is congratulations. I did not know that your daughter had gotten married. I remember that you were talking about it at one time. So that first and foremost, yes. congratulations to you and your family. Second of all, thank you. I think everyone wants to know the answer to this. How good is Doris Burke at golf? Give, give me a quick rundown of the golf game. Yeah, so I'm a 17 handicap. And uh, here's what happened. 
Uh, so I belong to a, a small uh, club, Weekapog, on the Rhode Island shore. It's a nine hole. It was just rated in the top 28 for nine holes in the country. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a link style. It's on the water. But before I left for the bubble, I was trying to squeeze in as much as I could with the group of guys that I play with. And literally on one nine, I shot an incredible score for me. And it, it deluded me into thinking I was getting quite good. And then I went to uh, play the Waldorf, which is where we stayed in Orlando. And it was 18 holes, Florida golf, very different. And it snapped me back so fast to reality. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get used to your club, and I think you can get fooled into thinking you're better than you are. So what I've learned, Mike, is I, I need to sort of challenge myself, play different courses and and if you don't mind a little profanity, we can play because I can promise you if I hit a, a sand trap, profanity is going to ensue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, listen, uh, you, you have a standing invitation anytime you would like. I would love to have you as a guest. Okay. Let's get now down to business. Tell me about yeah. your first memory of the game of basketball. So first memory is I'm seven years old. My family moves from Long Island uh, to the New Jersey shore. And the house my parents picked was right next to a park. And I'm the last of eight children. You can imagine it was, you know, quite the challenge to move that many people from New York to New Jersey. The previous owners of the home, Mike, left a basketball in the yard. Money was incredibly tight for my family. My dad worked for the same construction company for over 50 years you know, trying to raise eight children on that salary was not easy. Um, But uh, they shooed me out the door. You know, I was going to do nothing but get in the way during the move. So I picked up this ball at seven, fell in love. And my mom used to joke, Mike, that uh, if she wanted to find me, she just needed to pull back the kitchen curtains, look out to Indian Hill Park, and there she'd Mm -hmm. find her daughter. So So you came by it in, in the ultimate definition of honestly, Um, which is it just became part of your life immediately. And then as I was looking up some things about you here, I find that your childhood idols, you and I are almost exactly the same age because your idols, it said, were Kelly Trapuca, Kyle Macy, and Tom Heitzen, which is a fascinating group of people to have been your idols. But to what degree at that age were you aware of the women's game when you were growing up and falling in love with basketball? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, Kyle Macy and Kelly Trapuca, because if you remember, those would have been the teams on Kentucky, Notre Dame. Basketball was appointment viewing back then. You were going to be in front of your TV on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon because it's it was unlike it is now where you could catch a game any night of the week. I, I knew when those college basketball games were on and they were the preeminent programs, the most visible. And so those were the ones. I don't know how Tommy Heinsohn got on that list. They're not the first <laughs> to say that to me. I don't, you know, I didn't know, you know, Tommy Heinsohn preceded my, my generation of viewing. Um, how mindful of I, here's, here's what the women's game has done for me. First of all, the women's game has done absolutely everything. It was the very formation of my career. Without it, I don't get started in broadcasting. I'll tell you what it did. It afforded me an opportunity to dream because when Nancy Lieberman, Ing Nissen, Ann Donovan, uh, Marianne Stanley was the coach of Old Dominion at the time, that was the one women's college basketball game that would have been on. First, the AIAW National Championship, and then it became the NCAA Women's Championship. And it was literally while viewing that game that one of the announcers 
mentioned in athletic scholarship for women. And it was the first, I, I thought, oh my goodness, that's on the horizon. That's a possibility if I, I get good enough. And so as I went out to that park, and I used to do this. This is so funny. You're, you're reminding me of being a kid. Our home had hedges between uh, in the front and a path that would, you know, lead you to the sidewalk. And I would uh, watch college basketball on TV, put on this purple windbreaking jacket that I had won as a just like shooting free throws or something, and I would watch the game pick up my ball, run out between those hedges like I was coming out of the locker room, hmm. run to the park next door, go through layup drills, and, of course, a game, win, win the game at the end, like all kids do. You know, you've probably done it yourself. So that was my first memory of the women's game was, was the national championship, the one time per year you might see a women's game on television. And, and there, I, A, I love the story, and B, that's right. That might be the one time that you would see it. Again, I mentioned you and I mm-hmm. are pretty close to the same age. And, and so when we were growing up, the exposure of women's basketball was nothing compared to what it is. The really famous female athletes of the day were the tennis players primarily. And Chris Everett was a, a very famous person. Billie Jean King was a very famous person. Martina Navratilova. And then Olympians, like the gymnasts mm-hmm. and the figure skaters. So when in your experience did you start to see and feel that changing to where we now live in a period where women's basketball players, they are well-known people. There is enormous exposure for the sport, certainly comparatively speaking to then. When did you start to see and feel that changing? Yeah, Yeah, I'd I'd say one seminal moment, and this is long after, in fact, it's 10 years after I graduated Providence. I'm the same class as Billy Donovan, both point guards in 1987. Um, you know, 10 years later, I think, where I remember distinctly, Mike, I am calling the New York Liberty on radio, applied for the TV job, did not get it, uh, but they offered me the radio job. I fly uh, to Los Angeles uh, to do the radio broadcast of the New York Liberty. Literally, I can't imagine a soul was listening, but being courtside in the at the forum, which having watched the, the Lakers Celtics series with magic and bird um and i had only met gus one time before at a practice and you know val ackerman's gonna throw up the center circle ball and i i've always thought it was rebecca rebecca and i was just joking about this it wasn't rebecca lobo and lisa leslie it was kim hampton in the center of the, the the liberty and lisa were were on nbc and myers drysdale is you know calling the game and I am sitting literally, you know, at half court about to broadcast the first professional women's basketball game in the history of our country. Uh, you know, the ABL had happened, but without much fanfare and, you know, celebration. And I'm trying to do a radio broadcast through tears. And Gus Johnson is looking at me, doesn't know me really. We've, you know, since worked many games together and become friendly, but. I was trying to get my composure because I knew this was a seminal moment. You know, my daughter's 28, just married, going all the way back to then. She's not a sports fan, never played it, doesn't care for it, loves the theater, totally 180 degrees from her mom, which I love. But I knew it was a moment for her and for every woman in this country. And, you know, 
I'd say that was one pivotal moment. I'll tell you one incredible memory I have from my broadcasting career that I thought, boy, this maybe could change change things. It was the UConn uh, upset by Mississippi State in 2017, mm-hmm. where I, the building was electric. The rating, I think, turned out to be really good. The basketball was so compelling. It was something you'd seen for years in the men's Final Four, um, where in women's college basketball, Tennessee and UConn had dominated for so long. I don't know. There's probably been a million tipping points. I'd, I'd, I'd say one, that 97 moment was, I knew it was a big deal. I remember that 2017 moment as well. Somehow, I don't know if this is something that, that, that usually gets done, but someone mm-hmm. had a camera on the three of you. Someone had yes. a camera on the, on the announcers. And yes. I saw the, the look of shock when that shot I forget the name of the young woman who knocks down the shot that beats Connecticut when Connecticut was unbeatable. They hadn't lost a game in whatever it was, four years, and that knocks them off in the semifinals. And and, and any of us who followed it on social media could actually see your reaction. I, I, remember, th- I remember seeing that vividly. Yeah. Well, it was a 111-game win streak. We right. were in Dallas, Texas. The building was packed. Uh, Morgan Williams was the young lady, all mm-hmm. five foot five. She was, uh, her nickname was Itty Bitty. She had had this incredible run through the NCAA tournament. And yeah, I, it's funny because they had put one of those, they, we call it a spy camera in the business. You know, they'll, they'll turn a camera toward the announced team. Some producers like it because, you know, if you're trying to communicate to your announcers via the truck, but you can see they're on that spy cam that they're engaged or they're about to make a point. Maybe as a producer, you're not going to get in their ear. And Pat Lowry was, was the coordinating producer of the sport. And she, she called me the next morning. She said, do you mind if, if we release this tape? I said, hell no. That's incredible video footage of a very real raw reaction. And I said, please send it out because you're giving the viewer a glimpse into our world and I remember I was putting my arms out because what happens in those moments, and you know this, Mike, because you're in the business, but I don't know that the viewer knows it. That is the play-by-plays moment. And we were working as a threesome for the first time. Carol Lawson had joined our game telecast. We hadn't had that many reps together. And I wanted to make sure Dave called it, that he could put context on it. And you know your instinct is to... I remember a smile crossed my face at first, and then I got real serious because here's, you know, this is a Mississippi State team that the year before had been beaten by mighty UConn by 60 points, Mike. Mm. The year before, they got beat by 60 points. Now they're in a national semifinal. And when I say they got beat by 60, Dick Shaver had built this incredible program. They were on the rise Uh, They were winning SEC titles. They were, you know, a real player on the national stage. And yet UConn had beat them by 60 points. And the action was incredible. Uh, Morgan Williams, what gets lost is that kid made one hell of a defensive play uh, down the stretch. UConn goes too early. Shania Chong was their point guard. They should have only let it go to overtime. You should have taken one shot. Well, these were, it was a young UConn team. Chong had never been in this moment. She drives way too early, misses a layup. Williams almost draws a charge. Incredible no call. And I used to be very critical of women's college basketball officials at the time. The woman, I think it was a woman on the baseline. I wouldn't remember who it was. 
She didn't blow her whistle. And it was a great non-call, not a good non-call, a great non-call. So all of these things sort of had to come. This is where something's meant to be, right? They get the ball with 12 seconds. Morgan Williams doesn't get the ball. She doesn't catch it until five seconds to go. She's top of the key beyond the three-point arc. She's got to pull up, hit a pull-up jump shot. I mean, just honestly, Mike, you know, I have been, in, I have been so blessed in my career and so many of my memories are NBA driven because I've I've sat here and watched LeBron James now win four titles. That 2017 upset by Mississippi State will go down as one of the most memorable games in my career for sure. So obviously you became extraordinarily well known doing women's sports, women's basketball, both the college and the WNBA as you were starting to do NBA games as well before you made the full-time transition. How did it start? How did you start doing NBA games? Oh, boy. I mean, in a very small way, years and years ago, I mean, well over a decade ago, I'm not exactly sure how many years we've had the project, Mike, but I would, you know, periodically pop in as a sideline reporter. Uh, There was a year where Jed Drake was still with the company, and we had like a six to eight game Sunday night package probably only six games. And I remember Jed Drake calling me and saying, hey, would you like this package? It was short-lived uh, as an analyst. And I did it. And, you know, they would they would get me five to ten NBA games before Doug Collins, uh, you know, decided to, to get back on the team side of things and go with the Chicago Bulls. Um, so I would say I was I was doing the NBA for probably a good 15 years but just in sort of small roles, you know, sideline here for 10 to 15 games, maybe maybe 10 games as an analyst on the high end, um, especially early in the playoffs. Uh, literally, my first playoff game, Mike, only happens because Tom Tolbert was with us at the time, and they had been telling him, you need to get a passport. Uh, he, he never was able to logistically work it out, whatever happened. ESPN's first game is on a Saturday at noon, as it typically is in the playoffs, and it was in Toronto, uh, and Tom couldn't go, didn't have a passport, and that was my first playoff game. I couldn't tell you the year, but I I remember this distinctly. Um, After that, I, I get an email from Bill Walton, and it was substantial, but essentially it said, you know, congratulations, you were absolutely fantastic, and I hope you work more games as an analyst. Hmm. And you know this, Mike, like the viewership goes up, you know, we get a different level of viewer, much many more casual viewers in the playoffs than we would in the regular season. So that was that was a big break for me. <laughs> I feel like I've had so many big breaks, Mike, that have that have happened completely by accident. <laughs> Um, and there's one that came by accident, but every great broadcaster has stories like that. I have heard that all through this fall where I've interviewed so many people. There's always a moment that came because of some level of good fortune. I think that's true of all successful people in everything. So as you think now about the NBA moments that you've had the yeah. opportunity to yeah. broadcast and to witness, is there, is there, if I were to ask you to pick one that you think if you live to be 100, you'll, you'll wake up thinking about yeah. in the middle of the night, what would it be? Yeah, it it was probably, I mean, there's been a million, you know, the Ray Allen shot um, uh, in in game six that, that forces the overtime, they win it, and then they go back to back. Now, as that play is developing, 
you know, keep in mind that for the final two minutes of that that series, that NBA Finals series, uh, it's end of game, and the Spurs are up three to two in the series, and it looks like they're about to win a title on the opponent's home floor. And so I am kneeling courtside uh, with a gentleman by the name of Todd Harris, who has since passed away, uh, but longtime NBA employee. Uh, I've had known him for a long time. And we're courtside, and they've draped the entire court with that rope. And it's funny, I remember distinctly Mike Breen referencing this because Jeff Van Gundy in true Jeff fashion was like, why do they have the rope? What do they think? If San Antonio wins, Miami fans are going to come crashing down the floor. <laughs> you know, a little piece of sarcasm in, in this intense, heavy moment. And in my head, I'm kneeling down courtside. I'm next to Todd. I've got the armband on that will allow me access to the floor and to do the trophy presentation. And in my head, I'm rifling through questions. What am I asking Tony Parker? What about Tim Duncan? What about Greg Popovich? And all of a sudden, LeBron misses a three, you know, comes softly off that rim. Bosch gets it. Ray Allen backpedaling. And just, I, I couldn't believe he hit the shot. That's one. But I think the series that I'll always, always think about is probably 2016. You know, LeBron gets beat the year before. He loses Kyrie and Kevin Love in the NBA Finals. So Golden State beats him. Now he's down 3-1. It feels like a lost series. You know, and here's one thing I'll, I'll never understand, Mike. And those people who say, uh, whatever you feel about Michael Jordan or LeBron James, and, and I listen to, to guys who are contemporaries of Michael and who are so staunchly in their corner. And because I've not played against him or coached against him or you know, lived those moments, I'm not going to argue with those people. What I would suggest, if you look back at 2016, LeBron James, over the final three games of that series, I'm 99% sure was north of 36 points. I believe he was as close to a triple-double as you you could get. I I should probably look it up on basketball reference right now. Like, his in the final three games, but they had to win every single one. I know he averaged north of 36 points. He shot 50%. He was 40% from three because at the time – he and Dwayne were like competing to not only, you know, was LeBron the best player in the league, but now he's saying, well, I want to, I want to become the most efficient player in the league. And what he did in game seven, I think it was like 11 of the final 18 points. One of the greatest blocks in the history of the sport, the chase down of, of Andre Iguodala. Everybody talks about the Kyrie three inappropriate. That side step back, step three, with Steph Curry on him, ridiculous. LeBron scored 11 of the final 18 points. Stop telling me this guy doesn't have the clutch gene. He wasn't this or that. I can't stand it. Look at the final three games of the 2016 NBA Finals and tell me this man isn't isn't maybe the best to ever do it. Like, I just, I feel so privileged, and I will always look back on that 2016 series because, you know, keep in mind, right, like I'm behind the benches. I, you, you almost, in those instances, I always say this about the NBA playoffs, and forgive me, Mike, I, I, you got me going. I can rattle on here. Go. Uh, um, 
like I've always said, when you walk into an NBA arena in the playoffs, always, I swear there is a different energy. And there's this, this air of expectation and this level of expectation and tension. And it is almost something you could reach out and touch. Now I want you to advance through the NBA playoffs and know how much that goes up and up and up. And you're watching the stress and the very real performance pressure and a player have to endure making a mistake or missing a free throw. And I just, I don't know, I feel I feel so, so, so lucky to have, have been courtside for so many, so many things. But that 2016 down three to one, never in the history of the game, having to, to win it on the road. I remember at halftime of game seven, um, you know, talking to Ty Lue and I, you know, I'm saying, you know, what are you saying to LeBron? Now, LeBron was brilliant in the first half, and Ty Lue said to me, I told him I needed more, and mm-hmm. I just <laughs> laughed. I mean, here's a guy averaging 36, probably 11 boards and 10 assists or close to it, and Ty Lue's going, you know, I, I actually need more from you, LeBron James. Can you please provide more? And that he did. I mean, LeBron, that was that is, and obviously it's a legendary series. It is, and I just did an essay on this for the TV show recently. Um, it's the only championship that Cleveland has won in any major sport in, in more than a half century. And he is the only player to this day in that series yeah. to ever lead both teams in any playoff series in points, rebounds, assists, and steals. So yeah. he played, he, and that's against a team that won 73 games. So the notion that people want to tear him down is just ludicrous. I do need to just finish this part of the discussion by asking you, when he screams, Cleveland, this is for you, that's you standing yeah. there. What is that? Yeah. What, 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 how would you describe the energy of that incredibly raw, real, unforgettable moment? You know, Mike, I've, I've, um, I've not shared this a ton, to be honest with you, because I don't, I wouldn't want people to consider me unprofessional, right? Um, but, you know, a lot of these guys are in the age range of my son, some a little older, LeBron a little bit older than my son, right? But, 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 you know, having watched the vitriol he absorbed in the aftermath of the decision, however poorly executed, and it was poorly executed. Um, losing, you know, that series, having to come back and win anyway. I distinctly remember that moment because when he fell to the ground and started to cry, and you see him, he is on his knees, and he's convulsively shaking. That's how hard he's crying. His shoulders are going. And Mike... I get caught in the emotion. I'm not supposed to do that, right? I'm not rooting for Cleveland. I could care less. We got exactly what every announced team hopes for. Game seven, possession ball game. A team has to win it down the stretch. But as LeBron is sobbing, I was choking up. And in the aftermath of the game, we've got a long ride back to downtown San Francisco. And Dave Freed... Mike Breen's longtime stat man said, did you get emotional there? You'd have to know my voice to have heard the catch in the voice. 
and friends at home who watch it said, were you emotional? I'm like, oh, my God, you caught that. Hmm. But it was only those people who knew my voice, knew, you know, whatever the cadence or rhythm or whatever it is that you hear when somebody is speaking. I did. I, I got choked up. I was like, oh, my God, this guy is so moved. So, yeah, not. And again, I want to make it clear to Golden State fans, I wasn't rooting I had a very human reaction to a person overcome with emotion, uh, knowing how hard LeBron James had worked. So, It's one of the legendary moments ever. All right, one more um, sort of area I wanted to talk about with you here before I let you go, and I'm so grateful for all of your time here. I could talk about basketball with you forever. But there is something else that I think is really fascinating, and, and that is the way I have seen young women in our industry idolize you. There's really no other word to describe it. And the best example, nowhere near the only one that I've seen, was a very funny bit that I saw Katie Nolan did on her show, which I assume you have to have seen by now, where, where yes. Katie and Maria and a, and a bunch of people are, are, are doing sort of a, they're doing a, a satirical look at, at what it's like being a woman in sports broadcasting, but they do the entire thing in front of a shrine of you. You're, they have this huge photo of you <laughs> sort of in front of everything as though you're the deity of this group. And I, th I thought, first of all, I thought the whole thing was incredibly funny. But second of all, I do think to myself that that does seem as, as a broadcaster myself and one who knows a lot of people in the industry, it does feel like there is a lot of that. And I just wonder what that feels like for you. I did see it, and I texted Katie almost immediately, and I had met her, I think it was just the year before. I mean, I knew of her work. I think she's incredibly bright. And, you know, it's her and Mina Kimes and Laura Rutledge and Maria Taylor and, you know, so many young women who I know are just the consummate pros, exceptional at what they do, so much more polished at such a young age than I could have ever hoped to be. And Mike, like I know I'm on the back nine of my career. I am happily approaching the 19th green of, of my, my career. And I am just so excited by the women I see because I know they're just going to go to higher and higher ground. I will tell you the truth. I did not enter this business. You know, it was sort of a happy accident for me. I love the game of basketball. It has shaped my life since I was seven years old. For far too long, it probably um, defined me too much. So much of my self-esteem was wrapped up as a young woman uh, with bad hair, bad skin, bad clothes, and bad teeth. You know, I so much of my my self-worth was wrapped up in could I could I be an All Big East player? You know, where where could I go with this? Um, and so, like, I remember seeing that. I just texted her. I said, you guys are way too kind to me. Like, these young, I, I've been fortunate in terms of timing, Mike, right? Like, I am operating at a point in history where coverage of women's sports was growing exponentially. If it's not for the WNBA, I don't get in front of those executives at Madison Square Garden who say, hey, we'd like you to cover the Knicks now. Uh, or, hey, I think it's okay to put you on these men's college basketball games. I am. I am the beneficiary of incredible divine providence and unbelievable timing. And uh, the one thing I would say is if Mike, I could get choked up saying this, um, if Mike, somehow I have made the path easier for the women who come behind me, nothing professionally I've done would mean more to me because I know there are women 
who preceded me, who carved a far more difficult path than I did. And it was their professionalism and their competence that that allowed me the opportunities I had. And so, you know, I always used to say to my daughter, I miss coaching because I had direct influence on young women and I was that person in need of some confidence. And so I, I miss coaching. I miss sort of pulling in the same direction and the competitiveness and all those things that provide meaning. And I, and she's like, well, you know, why? And I said, well, I don't directly influence people. And she said, mom, you may do you may do that more than you think you are. So it was incredibly nice. These women are way too kind, but I have been incredibly lucky, Mike. Well, I, I hear that. And, and, but I can tell you from firsthand experience, having worked with so many of the people that we're talking about, the reaction of Laura and Maria and Cassidy Harberth and so many others when, when word is, oh, Doris is coming to do the show. Oh, Dor- that, that it is, let's put it this way. There's no one could, that could be coming to do the show that is more exciting than Doris Burke is coming to do the show. <laughs> I tell you that with, in all sincerity and candor. I will also, to push back on something you said before, say, I certainly hope you are not approaching the 19th green of your broadcasting <laughs> career. And I think I speak for everyone when I say that. Look, you and I are about the same age, and I don't feel like I'm anywhere near that. I think I'm getting better, and I think you're getting better, and I think I hope that there are a lot, there are a lot more games in Doris Burke's future. Yeah, well, I'm not talking tomorrow by any stretch of the imagination, but Good. you and I have also been doing it for, you know, over two decades, and at some point, you know, it's... And, and listen, we're, I, I've always believed that I'll know when, but I just know I'm probably closer to the end than the beginning, that's for damn sure, but yeah. There's a hell of a lot more fun uh, games to be had for me, um, and and what what develops, we'll see. But I I'm excited about the future. I don't I don't mean to make it sound like I'm leaving tomorrow. That's for sure. Good. And if you ever start thinking about it, call me because I, <laughs> <laughs> I will disabuse you I of will. that notion. <laughs> Doris Burke, I will. Uh, listen, I, I can't tell you how much um, how much I've enjoyed this, and how much I think everyone is going to appreciate your openness and, and, and your candor and everything else. And, and you really are. When I said, I think you are the most beloved person at ESPN. And I've been at ESPN for 24 years. And so that's really saying something. So thank you for this. Please enjoy whatever little time off you guys get before the next NBA season starts. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks a million. Thanks, Mike. And so that was my conversation with Doris Burke. Again, my endless thanks to her. What a spectacular discussion that was and and just what a spectacular career she has had and is having and I mean it when I say she cannot be anywhere close to being done anyway I I hope that you enjoy these long-form interviews that we do on this podcast it's something that I really like it's something I would like to continue Um, and I, I need you to send me a message that you want that and it's really simple how you do it if you would subscribe to this podcast if you would leave us a rating and a review um, that would let us know, it would let the people that I work for know, and it would let me know that you like it and that you want me to continue doing it. If you do, I unquestionably will. So please subscribe to this podcast, uh, leave us a rating and a review if you would be so kind, and that will let us know that after this fall, when we finish this season, we'll come up with a new theme and we'll keep doing these long-form interviews, which I really enjoy. We're going to take a week off for the election next week, uh, so everybody stay safe and go vote. And I will see you in two weeks for the next edition. I am Mike Greenberg, and this is I'm Interested.